VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If you're constantly processing everything as data, and you're, you say, we have a billion, we have a million, we have whatever it is, and, and we have this percentage of stuff that we have to deal with, it's reasonable to, to say, all right, we have to solve this at scale. We can't solve this with humans, right? The thing is, you actually could. Hello, and welcome to this very special bonus episode of Danny in the Valley. That voice you just heard? is Jessica Powell, who used to run communications for Google, but she quit about a year ago, and she has now published a satirical novel about Silicon Valley. And it is, uh, shall we say, uh, painfully on the nose. So the book follows the adventures of a prince of a far-flung country uh, called Piria, who ends up at a, as a product manager inside a fictional tech giant called Anahata, which is run by, surprise, surprise, an awkward data-obsessed chief executive. It has a whole moon colony angle. There's plenty of misogyny, lots of organic potato chips and a Red Bull, and uh, my personal favorite, an app called Moodify, which helps people find each other based on their mood. Uh, the novel, uh, which Powell very appropriately, very on brand, she published it not physically, but on the website Medium. It is a ridiculous novel. It's a ridiculous story, but it's meant to be. And the result is that it is a very pointed send-up of the modern technology industry. And as someone who was inside that machine, and pardon the metaphor, polishing some increasingly smelly turds that was produced by that machine. She was doing that for a very long time. She is a very effective critic at skewering, um, you know, this industry that she says she still does actually love, but, you know, that also has some, obviously, some very big problems. Um, So we talked to Pal about why she wrote this book, what she hopes to achieve, and last but not least, we talk about lightsaber aerobics. You're going to have to stick around to the end to hear about that last bit. But I think you will want to because it's a, it's a really uh, entertaining and fascinating conversation. So without further ado, here for your bonus episode is Jessica Powell. So The Big Disruption is your book. Yeah. But kind of a virtual book. <laughs> yeah, it's on. I mean, it seems rather appropriate, right? A book about the valley would be... Or at least appear first. As Not a in physical book. form. No. So it's on medium. Right. Mm-hmm. Just the first basic question: If you can briefly describe what it is and why you've written it. 
Sure. So the big disruption, I guess the full title is probably, it tells a lot about what the book is about in some ways. The big disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. There's kind of why I wrote it and why I published it. And the reasons are sort of different, actually. Because there was a six-year gap between when I wrote it, or at least the, the first version of it, and when I ultimately published it. Six years. Yeah. So I wrote it in 2012. I was living in London, and I was working at a startup called Badoo. And, um, Badoo was? Well, at the time, it told everyone it was the world's largest meeting platform. Meeting platform. Meeting platform. What do you think you do when you meet someone? Uh, you talk about business, right? Yeah. yeah. So it was the world's largest meeting platform. And I was its CMO there. I, was it actually about business meetings? What do you think it was about? Well, if so if it's called a meeting platform, I vaguely remember this name. Was it a dating site or something? Right. I mean, it was essentially a hookup site. Right. A dating site, if you want to be more... Uh, flattering. <laughs> um, but when I joined at the time, dating sites had much lower valuations. Like dating wasn't seen as a really cool space to be in from a VC perspective. Yeah. And dating, of course, you lose your users. Of you course. don't have your hookup site. If you're site. good, if you're good at what you right, do. Right, right. Which actually none of them really are in terms right. of getting people to, to do long-term pairing. But but you do see a lot of churn in dating sites. You know, people give up and go to another platform. Or yes, if you're actually successful, they leave your platform and never come back. Whereas if you're meeting, you always need to meet. So positioning yourself as a social media company was obviously a lot more attractive to VCs or for any potential exit or whatever you might be trying to do. So I arrived there. I'd actually just come from Google. I'd been working at Google for five or six years. And I had left just for kind of boring personal reasons that I'd ended up in Japan. My husband was in London. That didn't necessarily seem like the best long-term relationship strategy. So I moved back to London and figured, hey, I'll try a startup. And if it doesn't work out, most startups don't work. Eh, we'll see what happens. Right. Coming off my experience at Google, even though back then I, I never thought Google was this perfect company, I still, for the most part, had a really, really positive experience, really loved the people, and was generally really inspired by the way they would take really strong stances on stuff. To me, mm. that felt quite different from your traditional American company. So coming into the startup experience, I, it sounds so naive, like I'm embarrassed to say it, but it was true. I think I assumed, because all of my contact with the tech world up until then had been Google. And so I... And were you I, always doing PR and or kind of outward facing in Google well when I initially started working in Google I did I was hired into the communications department but it was so small in Europe at the time that I did a mix of product management I did policy I, you know I, I thought that everyone in tech wanted to do good that there was this really strong moral backbone and that everyone was generally like approached things the same way and that there was there was the same culture well that like, is, I'd that into is the, yeah that is the, the, image. the image right mm-hmm. and I'd bought into the Kool-Aid so much that I projected it onto the rest of tech as well right and all of a sudden I show up at this company where we're not constantly asking ourselves you know put the user first we're kind of trying to see how we can actively screw users over and <laughs> and it was my job like I was part of this that that we're going out telling people it's a meeting platform it's a meeting platform and meanwhile, you, you know that actually with a lot a straight of people face, are using Trying it. to do that with a straight face. Right, right. So, so I've been there for, I don't know, a couple months. And we go to a conference in Germany that's called DLD. And um, founder after founder is getting up there and just telling these like really highfalutin stories of what they're doing to essentially change the world mm-hmm. or to disrupt. You yeah. Know? I'm sitting there, and Brian Chesky comes up, who I've heard is a really nice guy. But Brian Chesky He's comes been up on there. this podcast, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Brian Chesky. <laughs> um, the, he gets up there, and I'm sure he would not do this today. But in 2012, he got up there, and he suggested that wouldn't the world be a better place, and wouldn't we potentially be able 
to eliminate war if we all were just cohabitating and staying in each other's houses. Couch surfing saves the world. Yeah, I mean, kind of incredible, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was sort of just this moment where things clicked for me, but I still got up there and gave my own spiel that was full of BS, right, meeting, about what we were meeting doing. Platform. Meeting platform, meeting platform. Then I get on a plane, and I'm flying to the U.S., and I end up sitting next to a guy who is a DJ slash copyright philosopher slash app developer, and he's telling me about his 50 projects, and I just have this moment. Also, the, on the movies and the flight were really bad. So I'm sitting there with my computer, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, how did we get here, right? Like, how did this world happen? This is such a bizarre and interesting moment in time, and why, why haven't I seen anyone capture that? I mean, to I didn't, like process I, what was happening. Yeah, kind of. like I, I didn't know how to write. I didn't know anything about writing. I mean, I'd always enjoyed doing it, but I'd certainly never written. I'd never even written like a short story. But I like pulled out my computer and I just type, start typing, just telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I get to like the hotel and I just keep going and going. I eventually leave that startup and I go back to Google because I missed that culture so mm. much. And it was in that break between the startup, Ado and Google that I wrote the book. But then I'm back at Google, and a few people had seen the book and even shown it to a couple publishers, and they had all said, look, no one's interested in Silicon Valley fiction. This is, like, 2000, this is, this is 2012. This is 2012. And for a number of years, I would just hear, no one's interested in this. Like, you think it's interesting because you work in the Valley, and we think it's funny, and we think it's, like, well-written, but there's no market. When did it, Silicon Valley, the f- series come out? I don't know, but it was, I mean, it was definitely after that, maybe two yeah. or three years after. Yeah. I mean, and I imagine a lot, since there's always so much lead time for when these things are started, when they appeared, been, yeah. probably a lot of people were having this thought of there needs to be something satirizing or based off of what, what goes on in the Valley. So then I shelved the book because also it seemed kind of bad form. The book wasn't about Google, but I was like, eh, you can't really be writing a, yeah. like a book that's that has critical elements of tech when you're doing communications, promoting and defending tech. So um, I didn't pick it back up again in earnest until I left. And you left when? A year ago. Okay. A friend of mine kind of encouraged me to, to give it another shot, ended up sending it to Medium, and they came back saying that they really wanted to try it out, that they're really interested in experiments, mm. and they wanted to give it a shot. And I was really excited about that because I'd gotten really irritated by what I felt were these two narratives that had merged about tech. On the one hand, the, the kind of almost fanboy stuff that you live out here in the Valley. Mm-hmm. Everything's great, and you know, if someone's going to criticize tech, it's going to be criticizing whether you know, there's a feature or if your phone notification or whatever, like yeah. really, really tiny things. And then on the other hand, particularly from the elites, regulatory, like yeah. journalists, so forth, this extreme dystopia narrative that paints this idea of everyone in tech being monsters, that they're all sitting right. there, and when they're, when they're planning a product, they're trying to figure out how they can get the most data out of you or how they can destroy everyone's jobs. Right. And my problem with those narratives is that they're so extreme that if you're sitting out here and you're an average engineer or anyone working in tech building this stuff how do you process that? You would process that the same way you would process, I don't know, a James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. It's so far outside of your day-to-day. There's, there's no nuance. And there's nothing that really resonates in terms of your day-to-day. Like, right. I remember there was a book, I will not name it, that did very well outside of the valley, outside of tech, painting this whole dystopia about social media and so forth. And the person who wrote it did not clearly hated tech. And not only that, he didn't seem to know what a browser was. Right. And if you're going to try and engage with a bunch of tech people... There needs to be a certain level of credibility. You need to be able to paint a world that is somewhat familiar to them, to, you know, to yeah. hook them. And, and I think also importantly, anytime you're trying to have a disagreement with someone, like, 
like you said, achieve some nuance in it. And I think it's quite ironic that in my attempt to do that, I picked satire because it is quite <laughs> hyperbolic and yeah. exaggerated. Well, it's funny. You were talking about this kind of almost a messianic approach to to overlay some kind of we are changing the world with whatever it is that the product may be. And just a complete lack of kind of critical analysis, at least mm-hmm. within this bubble. I was at a Google event last year where they were talking about Google Home. Those events are always really interesting because every new thing that is unveiled, there's lots of whooping and clapping and everybody's really <laughs> There's excited. always a video. And there's always a video. People are so happy. Exactly. The music is calming. This new device is adding, is creating, exactly. making life smooth, more smooth. And coming from the kind of UK perspective, I mean, one of the things they were most excited about was this idea that Google Home can understand and interact with a child as soon as they can speak. And it was the first speech recognition system that could actually handle like the very particular lexicons of small children. And everybody was like, woohoo! And I just remember thinking like, this is, should we not, should there not be a kind of a more in-depth discussion of whether that's a good thing? Is Google going to be collecting data on my child as soon as they speak? I think there was even something around the way people interact with assistants, right, as well. Yeah. Kind of almost not putting sufficient emphasis on... Manners. And man- right, the, the fact that you would just say, Google, give me the weather, yeah. it's not, doesn't actually replicate yeah, there's no please normal thank human you. speech. Which sounds so trivial when you say it, but they're... But right? I just remember sitting in this crowd, and I've had this, again, I had this last week at Dreamforce, which is the weirdest Dreamforce. thing. Dreamforce. Which is the weirdest thing I've ever, one of the weirdest <laughs> things I've ever experienced. Where you kind of sit there and you're like, am I the only crazy person here? I'm the only sane one. There's just this, we are changing the world through customer relationship management software. <laughs> I don't know how it is inside of these companies, but is it even more so? I mean, is because there, there is a lot of stuff that's trickling out now about people, you know, like Facebook and at Google. People within these companies starting to be like, well, you know, are we doing the right thing here? There seems to be more of a discussion, at least that is trickling out, which wasn't even happening before. You know, I think I can't speak to... Facebook. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have my opinions there, and I have my hunches <laughs> there about what happens. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I was always impressed that even as Google got larger and larger, throughout the years, I would find myself in meetings where I would see money left on the table, where mm. there would be. It's not that someone would explicitly say, "We don't want to be evil, and will this be evil?" But it would be, is this the right thing to do? Like, is, you know, is it right for us to take money and to show this kind of ad? Is it right for us to do X or Y? I think there really was and continues to be like a strong kind of moral consciousness mm-hmm. there. I think when the moral question is huge, it's debated. What I wonder about is what happens on a day-to-day level. Stuff that never even reaches, say, the, the management team. death by a team. thousand cuts type yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. And you're, if you're sitting there, and you're, again, you could be this CRM back-end engineer sitting at Salesforce, they're not saying, you know, we're, ch- we're changing the world by, you know, if we, if we could just bring customers together, there'd be no more war because mm-hmm. people would talk to right. each other for commercial transactions, right? I, I doubt it's that extreme, but there probably is some version of, you know, we are making people's lives easier, we're making them smoother. Mm-hmm. It, it's still an overstatement of what they're doing. You're surrounded by that, combined with free food constantly, the massages, all the perks, all the wonderful things. 
you live in a place where everyone else is working in tech. If you were living in another part of the world where everyone wasn't working in tech, the questions you would get about your product and about your job and what your product is doing in the world would be fundamentally different. So if you and I were to meet right now with someone working on controversial content, because we all speak tech, because we all know how platforms work, because we all know that this is all done at scale and you're not going to have manual review, we would jump right past the first 50 questions that probably a journalist, say, who was new to tech, yeah. might immediately ask about, well, why, are there, why, why does terrorist content appear here? Or right. how does fake news happen? Those kinds of things. And because we jump past all of that, because we all have this shared vocabulary, we never stop and say, but wait a second, why wouldn't you have a human involved? Why is it that you're saying that it's okay to have this very, very small percentage of content that's kind of horrific? Because what happens here is that because we talk data all the time, we lose all the human stories in that. About a week ago, I was out with my husband, and we overhear, because they're speaking very loudly, two men who work in tech sitting near us. Of course, this is a familiar story to you because yep. you hear it all the all time. The time. Yep. But these guys were super loud. One of them works at Facebook, and the other one works somewhere else in tech. So the other guy's asking the Facebook guy something about Cambridge Analytica, and you guys have Man. had a rough patch lately, and so forth. And the, Facebook's guy, the Facebook guy's answer is, <laughs> well, you know, when you're serving 2 billion users, bad stuff's going to happen. And it's unfortunate, and we're taking measures. And then he gave, like, three measures he was taking. Mm. That answer just, it made me so mad because, for one, I recognized my own role in, in crafting that kind of messaging, right? You know, I mean, back when I had been working in, in tech, that's the kind of thing that you would write for someone who was externally facing who had to go defend this stuff or yeah. would have questions from their publisher partners or advertisers or whatever it might be. Second, because it's a horrific answer, even if it's just 0.1%, 0.1% of 2 billion, I mean, that's a whole lot of Myanmar's. But if you're constantly looking at everything as, oh, 2 billion, then you would never, ever yeah. start things from the point of, how do we completely tabula rasa, how do we prevent this stuff? Because I think if you did, they would have gotten to things like human moderation much, much faster. And of course, there's legal concerns and there's all kinds of slippery slopes. But at that, again, is the problem with tech is there's always a slippery slope. The defense is always, but we have to do it at scale. We have to do it with machines. Humans only get used if it is if they're almost forced into it. Fall well, it's mountains. really interesting you say it because I've had that similar interaction like the one you descri- described so many times where you talk to, like we had Mark Andreessen on this podcast, and I asked him, you know, for example, I was like, do you think it's a problem that the people making these products are mostly kind of standard issue white guys who are rather comfortable in their life. And he got really angry. The kind of stock answer is the world is better off now than it has ever been. If you look at it from, you know, a 35,000 foot view, and then everybody just like rattles off these stats about all the things that are just made easier by tech. And it's that point of like, well, and if there's, you know, some eggs get broken along the way, then, you know, we'll figure it out. Right. It's one egg out of the 12. Exactly. But it's 12 times like... You know, yeah, a exactly. Part of that is what I was hoping to achieve with the book. I think people in tech, particularly right now, feel so under siege that they're constantly be told that they're so bad, and that, and they they get indignant because they're like, "Look at this that we built and that that we built." You have a whole bunch of people that generally look the same and talk the same and think the same and went to the same schools, and I include myself in that bucket. Largely the same class background, 
who are solving problems that they have. I want food right now. I want a car to get from here to there. Right. And yet there's so many problems that, that don't get solved because of who they're building for. And there's yeah. so, you know, so here's a, a tiny one, and it's, it's a trivial one, but it's a very quick one and one that I'm living right now because I have a newborn, which is that why is it that all of these fitness apps, why can they not tell the difference between when I'm biking and when I'm pushing a stroller? I think if there are a lot more like people of my age that were building yeah. those particular things, and particularly if there were women, since it would we be tend obvious. to do the majority of the childcare, yeah. that would have already been solved. Yeah. Why is it that when you look at VCs, women are so horrifically, under, and people of color, horrifically underrepresented in terms of the funding they get? That we don't exist, or that we don't have companies, and we don't have ideas. Because you look at, the, you know, there's a, a VC, um, we'll see, called um, Precursor here, mm-hmm. run by a guy named Charles Hudson. 70% of his founders are women or people of color. So don't tell me, Mark Andreessen, that you can't yeah. do it. And maybe it takes a little bit more effort. Not th- that horrific term that's been used before around like lowering the bar, or they talk about pipeline mm-hmm. and all those things. Like, I don't buy it. Because it feels like that sameness. Because also, you know, I was gone for 15 years, I've come back. You know, San Francisco did still have like kind of a working class vibe about it. And, you know, now it has come back. It is a kind of a one industry town. It feels like that sameness is, to use a very hackneyed phrase, is a bug, not a feature mm-hmm. of the problem. Absolutely. I, I met a startup a couple weeks ago that was out here try, trying to, to raise money. Mm-hmm. It's two people in Atlanta. They do um, surplus food collection. Mm-hmm. So the sandwiches that are left over at airports, for right. example, not the actual leftover food. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but the ones at the end of the day, yeah. And they pick it up and they redistribute it via an app to nonprofits. I used to work at a soup kitchen. We were constantly facing um, food supply issues. That kind of thing would have been amazing. Again, I think tech has done and will continue to do so much wonderful stuff. And one of the the founders came from sort of a food insecure background. I think that is like a great example of something that never would have been solved for. Which is extraordinary if you just walk out the streets of San Francisco. Right. And the homelessness problem here. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say to your, to your point about San Francisco is when I wrote the book, as much as I'd like to think that I'm super insightful and self-reflective and all that, that's probably not the case. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably more that I was living in London, which was not a tech and is not a tech-dominated city. So you're, you're working there, and A, you're working for an American company. Which means I think there's a natural amount of suspicion because when Americans come charging into a country saying that they're about to save you, <laughs> you know, like there's some history there yeah, that doesn't yeah. necessarily always, you know, favor them believing you. So there's, there's, I think, a, a healthy skepticism in Europe. On top of that, a lot of the things that the company was doing directly affected people in England, right? Mm. Publishers, book authors. I think of Book Search or I think of Google News. This had a local impact, even though there was relatively little local presence, right? Yeah. So you're constantly interacting with the outside world, not just in my job doing communications, but at dinner parties, wherever it would be, where people would be asking what you do, they'd be challenging you constantly. You couldn't just think about it from a, like a PR perspective and what you'd Challenge you in a about. way that was different than you might be Absolutely. challenged here. I really felt like I had to use my brain to think about stuff. Yeah. Now- Plenty of times, I, I felt very strongly about what we were doing and felt strongly about Google Book Search, for example. I thought, on the whole, was a really inspiring project. Mm-hmm. But I was challenged so often upon that. It really made me think through what was being disrupted, who was being disrupted, and see, I think, fairly clear-eyed what I thought we were doing right and what we were doing wrong and, and so forth. 
Um, I think that sort of level of self-interrogation is just harder when you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people that, again, immediately start with the assumption of, oh, well, of course you're doing all this on a platform, and of course you're doing this, and of course you're going to be eliminating a middleman. It's normal to think, well, if you're doing a tech product. Yeah. Of course, you're, who are you eliminating? What are you cutting out? Whereas yeah. I think in other parts of the world, they say, wait a second, we have a lot of middlemen here and women. Yeah. Have you thought about that? Well, it's also just the whole way kind of societies are set up. Like here, you know, there's obviously a huge homelessness problem. And, you know, London is a city 10 times as big with the 120th of the homeless population because there's just a different way that you approach kind of taking care of people or way you structure society. But here it's kind of, it's why the biggest companies are here. It's kind of every man for himself. Here, there's an increasing number, of course, startups, and you do have a few big companies here. Twitter, Salesforce um, are all in San Francisco. But the biggest companies, you could argue, have the most influence and power today are in the South Bay. And so if you live in the city, which a lot of the younger employees Mm -hmm. in particular do, you're getting on a shuttle early in the morning before... Those big Google shuttles or Genentech or Facebook or Netflix, they're all, yeah. And they're carrying you out of the city down to these campuses. You're on the campus. You are fed all this food. Um, you You can work out there. You have your dry cleaning taken care of, everything you want to, a lot of your friends are there. You interact with very little of San Francisco. I felt uncomfortable uncomfortable about it, right? Like it, it felt wrong to be so detached from the city that I lived in. And so I think it becomes much easier to ignore a lot of the problems around you. And, and the thing is, again, when I think about the, these kind of extreme dystopia narratives and so forth, these are not bad people. I mean, surely, yeah. of course, there are bad people in tech, yeah, just yeah, like there are course. bad people in any industry. You know, and I think they genuinely want to do good things and want to help people. But I think there's, they're not being forced. They're not being hit in the face enough with the outside world. And so I think I'd like just to see a little bit more of that, which is kind of why I liked satire. It's like a yeah. hammer that's just like pounding you. It's relentless, right? Over yeah. and over again. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And is there a dissonance between, because the Silicon Valley perks are famous, you know, the on-site masseuse and all you say, the free food, and usually the food is really good we still complain about it yeah i'm sure still have online message boards once as a joke they changed the um bowls that you could have your cereal in in the morning they changed it to a smaller bowl and the oatmeal packets the free oatmeal packets that they gave you um 
didn't actually fit so perfectly in the bowl because I would make my time in England. I lived there for about eight years. You all do porridge very well. Mm. So I've become very opinionated about how my porridge should be prepared, even though I now embrace the word oatmeal living back here. So I'm, I, you know, I have my exact way I make my oatmeal. I have bananas. I have my milk. And these, the change of the bowls made it really difficult to carry out my oatmeal vision right. the way it was necessary. That so sounds I, like grounds for a revolt. Absolutely. So as a joke, <laughs> I remember posting internally. We had like a food message board about my outrage. I mean, it was a half joke because I really did actually want to see the polls yeah. changed. What was funny about it was that it was, while it was a joke, it was not crazy for Google. I'm sure you had some people like, yeah, I've been thinking, I'm so glad somebody said something. <laughs> Someone once complained <laughs> to me about the water stocked in the micro, like the mini kitchens, because when they opened the cap of the water mm. bottle, it was filled so high to the top that every time they would do it, they'd get wet. And so oh, they were no. trying to create a petition for people to, um, to get the brand changed. <laughs> These are important issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they were saving water, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but so was there one th- thing or a procession of things that made you finally either quit or kind of redoubled your determination to get this out here? I mean, I think the biggest thing was what we were talking about earlier. Of just I didn't feel human anymore. The amount of time I spent working, the lack of contact with the outside world, you're never not working, even more so than I'd say a, a regular always-on job. Yeah. I think that was the, the biggest driver of it. Had the nature of what you were doing changed in terms of what you had to defend or the stances you had to take? Because obviously Google is now this, however big it is, $800 billion company, and it has its hands in so many pies. Our paper did that investigation around extremist content on mm, YouTube, mm-hmm. et cetera. There's oh, yeah, lots thanks of, for that. Yeah, you're welcome. That, 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 was, that was a fun time, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of things where you just, uh, that, and there's this increased critical eye toward text, so there just seems to be a lot of more, a lot more stuff that's being uncovered that is pretty difficult territory, I imagine, for somebody in the job you had. Yes. Maybe the distinction I would draw, I was never asked to lie, for example, or Mm -hmm. I was never presented with a fact and then told, how do you spin this? I thought that that even on the most unsavory issues, I understood how we got there. I was able to have a voice in how we were going to respond or how we should act. Like I it all was reasonable, which I'll put in quotes because it takes me back to my earlier point. A lot of this stuff, not all of it. Cambridge Analytica is not reasonable, right? Yeah. But when I think of, for example, how you end up with bad content on platforms. When you start from the, if your starting point is everything has to be solved at scale and it has to be solved by machines, that, that leads you in a very narrow direction in terms mm. of how you're going to solve it. And Why is that the starting point? But that's my question. If you're constantly processing everything as data and you're, you say, we have a billion, we have a million, we have whatever it is, and, and we have this percentage of stuff, that we have to deal with, it's reasonable to, to say, all right, we have to solve this at scale, given the extraordinary number of users we're, we're, we're serving. Yeah. Or we have X million or billion hours of content uploaded every minute or hour, whatever it is, yeah. we can't solve this with humans, right? The thing is, you actually could. It would just, it would slow things down incredibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be expensive. It wouldn't be good for your platform if you're entirely just looking at this as as the winner is the one who gets the stuff out there and yeah. the fastest and is disseminated the quickest. So it's reasonable on some level to have that argument. But it's unreasonable in my mind when you are getting to a point where you have, I mean, electoral interference or what happened with Rohingya in, in Myanmar. I mean, that it's, it's unacceptable. So yeah, figure are... it out. I understand, and this is where I'm trying to say, I, I didn't like defending it 
but it wasn't in its own way so much the defense of it as it was the the prince like our start the, the starting point that bothered me right. the way that we approached all of this and it's a hard problem to solve i'm not saying it's so simple yeah. as just throw a million you know humans at it but i wish i wish more conversations in the valley didn't always start with these fundamental assumptions around scale and machines. And then, of course, right now, AI, everything's AI. I don't know how many people of podcasts you've done in the past year where everyone's just like, AI, AI. Mm -hmm. Someone this morning sent me an email congratulating me about my book. The Gmail suggestion was, and congratulations to you, too. What was I congratulating him on? (laughs) Or I think it was an Apple On his congratulations. Yeah, that's right. I should just actually every time, no matter what anyone says to me. And congratulations to you, good sir. I mean, that's a super silly example, but we could sit here and probably have 10 things that we could come up with right now where the AI is not working the way the, as well as it will in five Auto years, correct. as well as it will in 10 years, yeah. right? It's happening more and more where people kind of, quote, unquote, inside are being critical in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I know you've gone out of your way to say, look, you still like Google and like the people there, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance. But, I mean, it's also a risk, isn't it, to you personally or professionally? Sure. I think people are, would probably have preferred I not write a book about the Valley, <laughs> for sure. At the same time, I, w- I think people who I'm genuinely friends with are still going to be my friends. Yeah. I, would, I would hope that someone could separate the company they work for from a friendship and that allegiance to people and their emotions and their feeling and all that is kind of Trump's an entity. Yeah. And it's sort of extraordinary to me, right, that someone would be so offended by what you wrote about a company that they would never speak to you again. Someone asked me why I didn't write a memoir or why I hadn't written some kind of tell-all, even if it was thinly masked. Yeah. And it had honestly never occurred to me. For one, it just I don't think that's entirely my style. I think it seems kind of mean to, you know, yeah. do a, a write a book about, you know, you know, Perry Page or whatever I would call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think more importantly, when you that becomes one story. I mean, I think in some cases you have a story about specific individuals, particularly with nonfiction that can become emblematic of an, of an era. Like I think the Theranos book, for example, is yeah. widely held up as an example of in how many ways the Valley and particularly how companies get funding and yeah. how the deception is continued, that that becomes emblematic. But a lot of times if you're writing about a specific person or people, um, that means that everyone else gets a pass. And I wasn't interested in that. Like, it, the, the, Google is by far, to me, not the worst offender um, yeah. of the big companies, nor do I want to give the startups a pass. Like, I really wanted to kind of hit everyone right. with it. So, in an ideal world, where are we in, or how have things changed in, I don't know, five years? Or what would you like to see that different from what how things work now or don't work now? In five years, I want everyone in tech to be giving all of their food to the homeless on Market Street <laughs> in bags that say the big disruption. No, I mean, I'm not... Um, like I mean, are there delusional. any things that, that... No, but in just in terms of, like, are there a couple things that really, that you would yeah. just be like, these are the real problems here that we yeah. have to, to absolutely. think about in a different the way. The biggest thing I would like to see is a cultural shift within these companies. Like, I would love if this book would start a little bit more conversation around how do you truly make a shift to bring more voices to the table. I think, you know, in the Valley, and again, we talk about, oh, it's very easy to have a conversation about platforms and controversial content where you and I and someone else working in tech would already jump to point D, and we've left off all these Mm -hmm. things that someone in another part of the world who didn't work in tech would ask about that are actually reasonable questions to Mm -hmm. ask. In that same vein, 
every year, everyone parades these dismal diversity statistics. And in the Valley, the companies break it out by gender and by race. But I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure if we measured by class, we would see that there's a, a certain amount of homogeneity in terms of the mm-hmm. class, like socioeconomic class. Age, again, they don't break out. I think we, we know where age skews yeah. in the Valley. Educational background, they do have their information. It's not broken out. But again, like there have been studies particularly looking at where founders come from and looking at the from the VC community and pretty you know there's a, a large 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 um, cohort that comes from basically Stanford and Harvard. Yeah. The problem with all of this is you've got diversity problems on multiple levels and everyone frets about it at least annually and then we all go back to doing what we do every single day. Yeah. I bristle at the notion that anyone who's from an underrepresented group, and it, and it happens that by being in tech, I, I fall into that bucket, but yeah. in many other spaces in the world, I do not. But I bristle at the notion that because you're from an underrepresented group, that means you have to sh- like constantly be thinking about, you know, I remember when I was at the startup, many, many different times I tried to talk about sexual harassment and, and problems at the startup. There was one a man who worked there um, who was actually quite receptive to all this, but mm. he said to me, Thank you. You know, you're the only woman here. So tell us whenever you see this stuff. And he was like my best supporter. But I was like, that is so messed up. Right. right? Like because you, 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 should, you all should be yeah. watching this. Right. So I do bristle a little bit at the feeling yeah. that there has to be this responsibility that someone, you know, constantly has to be on watch. However, I think there's a really practical thing that happens when you have representation in the room. It just means that women would be more likely to say to feel comfortable coming to work for me perhaps right because i'm a woman and i probably yeah. thought about some of the, the issues that they've thought about before and i think you would ask questions like in the same way the stroller thing i don't necessarily have an expectation that someone who's 25 um, and has never had a baby needs to needs to be thinking of the stroller use case for yeah. their fitness app at all but if you had someone in the room who had a similar problem to me that that probably would come up mm-hmm. And then there's this final part, which is the, this diversity of thought. And I think the biggest problem that happens in these companies is that it's, it's not just the gender and ethnic diversity, which is a huge issue, and all, everything tied to that around promotion and retention rates. It's also what kinds of backgrounds are coming and making these decisions. Because what tends to happen is that the people who represent the external world, right? Mm-hmm. The ones who are interfacing a lot of times with the outside world. I'd say that's like policy people, certain kinds of marketing people, mm-hmm. the communications people, customer support. Mm-hmm. These are always much lower on the hierarchy than engineering. Those are like second-class citizens. Yeah, kind of. and in these management teams, the bulk of people are engineers. A CS degree, <laughs> there are plenty of engineers who are very mm-hmm. well-read. However, and so I'm not trying to make some sweeping generalization about them. However, I think there's a real value to having people that a lot of their educational background is in critical thinking because a lot of the issues that are coming up now with these tech companies are fundamentally issues of values and judgment and moral questions. And I don't have a problem with people, you know, with coming up with community guidelines and saying certain kinds of controversial content is allowed and all these things. But making sure that, that that is a rigorous process, that that process is bought into across the board, that it's enforced, and that, that it's then enforced in the way that's not just machines, machines, but yeah. there's also the most responsible way. A more holistic Yeah, approach, and I think right? that holistic point of view is more likely to service if you have a whole bunch of people coming from very different backgrounds, in the broadest sense of that sentiment. Yeah. And then finally, I mean, you, you talked about this kind of diversity of thought or lack thereof. It was really funny. Can I say one thing about yeah, that? Yeah, please. So the book appeared yesterday. Yeah. 
And um, on Twitter, uh, everyone was very, very complimentary, which was very nice. But there was a funny tweet I saw where this guy um, responds to the New York Times article about it Mm -hmm. and says, I'm genuinely confused about this. You know, tech is fundamentally about politics and philosophy. And I think we all think a lot about this, which I agree with. I do think it's fundamentally, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of politics and philosophy. Anyway, so he's, this is an engineer, a white male engineer. His comment is then like liked by another white male engineer and is liked by yet another white male engineer. And I was like, yeah, that, that's kind, that's sort of what I'm talking about. Anyway, it was kind of funny. Um, and, well, and that's what I was going to say is also there is a, on that I, I idea of diversity of thought, you know, you have the people like the James Damores of the world and, you know, people saying, well, Peter Thiel, who's obviously his own entity. Um, yes, but people's the ocean on his island, yeah, yes. Exactly, seasteading. Um, but this idea that, you know, this place is so, at least theoretically, aggressively progressive that there's no room. I mean, I think Jack Dorsey at Twitter said he kind of admitted it recently. I mean, inside these companies, is your experience, is there, I mean, can you say whatever you want, kind of, or be whatever political stripe you can be or is it is it really kind of like no um these companies are particularly facebook google are the internet yeah the good and the bad of the internet like they built this thing and the good of it is that anyone can say whatever they want to say and the bad of it is that anyone can say anything they want to say so i think compared to other companies absolutely i think that well there's two things one on the conservative part i mean the valley is left-leaning right like there's no secret I can see where it would be hard for an employee who's conservative. And I imagine then it probably ranges in different experiences in different companies. Um, I mean, I think the best experience would certainly be that you're coming to work with a bunch of people where they may have very, very dramatically different political views from you, but you are not necessarily ashamed to express those views. I I do think that the election really politicized things quite a bit. I imagine that made it much, much harder for conservative employees because maybe they were immediately felt like they were being lumped in with Trump. But I think there's also something important is that, yes, there's a huge amount of free speech in these companies, something that I've never seen in any other company. So someone could say, well, you know, you you say that there needs to be diversity of thought. And so, if you know, okay, there isn't maybe as much representation as there needs to be women and people of color are underrepresented, but they are still there. So if it's so important to get this broader view, say people with humanities backgrounds or whatever it might be, to get their broader view and having that input into the products, well, they can say it. How come your argument kind of falls apart there because these people exist, right? There certainly are humanities majors who work at Google, you know, or Facebook or whatever. The problem with that is it completely discounts that allowing speech or allowing free speech is very different from who listens to speech, whether whether those people will be listened to and whether they will be taken seriously. There's obviously something happening in this country right now with Kavanaugh, which is like a, a very similar parallel, mm-hmm. right? And both sides have been given the the have been allowed to speak, but the credit, you know, what what's happening in terms of how that speech is being undercut and that kind of thing. So you see the same thing in the workplace. I'm not saying right. as extreme as that, yeah, yeah. But but it is it is something that doesn't just affect us in tech; it's across the right. board. If you were to look at who represents the outside world, who's the most in contact with? friction, right? Yeah. Like who is having to constantly defend products or who is constantly having to talk to regulators or to talk to customers on the phone, hmm. right? A huge percentage of that is also women. And so I think there's something interesting when you have, when the, the people that are voicing a lot of, the, like internally that might be yeah. voicing some of these concerns, I imagine there's a minimization that also happens on the gender front. 
I have one more question and yeah. I'll let you go. From all of your time working in tech, do you have like one moment that was just quintessential Silicon Valley? Other than of, my oatmeal? I mean, my yeah, the oatmeal's, bad. that was pretty awesome. Is there any, because like I had, when I was at Dreamforce last week and I was hanging a little thing on the tree of gratitude. And there's the not a tree of gratitude. There's a tree of gratitude. Inside Salesforce? Inside Dreamforce's whole thing, they in the middle of it, there's a tree of gratitude where it's you amazing. write something down that you're thankful for and they hang it on the tree for you. And at the end of Dreamforce, it's all there. And you were like, distributed engineering platforms. <laughs> exactly. Python. <laughs> um, but I just remember, I, just, I wanted to just go see it because I was like, that can't be real. And of course, it was very That's real. extraordinary. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else like that that kind of occurs to you that you saw over the years where you're like, this place is unlike anything else. Let me, let me give you two. Okay. Good and the bad. Okay. This is actually not the bet. Like, this doesn't encapsulate all that's good about the Valley, but it does hit on something that I just loved. I remember going back to work after a maternity leave, and the very first thing I saw when I walked into the office was a flyer on the wall for a lightsaber class. And it was just, it was like a, I don't know if it was in a, like lightsaber aerobics or lightsaber capoeira or if it was lightsaber meditation. I really hope it was lightsaber capoeira. Like. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be. But I just, I loved that. Like I, I had never and probably will never have the chance again to attend a lightsaber class. And it's the, the, the whimsy and the, and the perks, all of that stuff really does make the culture quite special yeah. and wacky and yeah. like genuinely wacky. It's not that it's just always cultivating a wackiness. Yeah. I'll give you the other side. Last week I was at the airport. I was at SFO and it was the day of the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. There were a whole bunch of women in their 20s to, there were two women who looked like they were in their 70s or 80s. We're all sitting there waiting for a plane. Every single woman I looked at was watching on their iPad or their phone Dr. Ford's testimony, and some of the right. women were crying. And around me, the loudest voices and more and multiple voices were a bunch of men, clusters of men, different parts of this waiting area, and they were all talking about Dreamforce. <laughs> you know? So, there yeah. you go. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jessica, who very kindly waited for me. I was stuck in traffic on the bridge. I was very late. But she stuck around, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did. And I will be back next week. But in the meantime, I will be writing a bunch of stuff in the paper this week, including a written version of this interview. So do check that out in the Sunday Times. Um, You can also see it online at thetimes.co.uk. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And I will talk to you next week. Thanks and have a good weekend. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 